Turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter number 4. Matthew chapter number 4. Now let me just say this morning, I'm not a compromiser, but I don't have a necktie. If I am a compromiser, it's not because I don't have a necktie, but uh, I, I walked off and left the house this morning and left it behind. I mean, there's at least eight people around me that should have reminded me, but they all failed. And that's okay. We're not going to bring that up. We're just saying, you know. And uh, no, that was my fault. And uh, so I hope you can listen to a preacher that ain't wearing a necktie. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter number four this morning. And uh, they're opening the doors. That way people can head out. That's what they're doing back there. Kenny Snow. It's snowing in here. Kenny Snow. Matthew chapter number four. Let's begin reading in verse number one. Matthew chapter four, verse number one. The Bible says, Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil take them up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil take them up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the house of God, Lord, the comfort and the solace and the encouragement that we get just from being in this place. Lord, my heart's blessed to be with your people today, to sing about you, to rejoice in you. Just be reminded how precious you are. Lord, there's no name like your name. There's no grace like your grace. There's no person like your person. You are a precious God, Lord. And I thank you for being so good to me and to my family. You're so good to us day by day. Lord, I couldn't even begin to rehearse all of the goodness of your of your blessings and of your your grace and your mercies in, in our life. Lord, we're so unworthy, so undeserving of you. Lord, I just thank you for being such an amazing, awe-inspiring God. Lord, you're, you're worth anything that we give up that we might pursue you. Lord, you far outstrip and outweigh anything this world could promise. Lord, I just thank you for being such a wonderful God. If there's anybody under the sound of my voice that doesn't understand how wonderful you are, Lord, I pray they'd see it today. I pray they'd see that there's no hope outside of you that there's no peace outside of you, that there's no contentment or satisfaction outside of you. But, Lord, that you're not just the only thing, you're everything. Lord, I just pray that you'd work in the hearts of each and every person here today. Lord, beginning with my own, I pray that this message be preached to my heart first, Lord, and that the Spirit of God would have perfect liberty to work in this place. I love you, Lord. Thank you for loving me. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The passage of Scripture that we've read this morning is commonly called the temptation of Christ. Now, undoubtedly, this is not the only time that the Lord was tempted. However, it is the chief time in Scripture that our attention is drawn to this experience of the Lord Jesus suffering temptation. Now, I'd remind you that the word temptation in your Bible, and this is just a little Bible lesson, might help you as you study the Word of God, that the word tempted or temptation in your Bible has two different connotations. The book of James, chapter number 1, describes these two different connotations. And sometimes the word tempted in your Bible, it describes afflictions or suffering, persecution that a person might experience. And then at other times, the word tempted or temptation can mean the solicitation to do evil. Well, it's apparent from our text that while, of course, the Lord was experiencing a trial 
through this, uh, through this encounter that the devil was doing everything he could to try to encourage him or solicit to him to commit evil, to compromise the standard and the calling of God upon his life, and to yield to the things that would dishonor the Lord, at least in that moment and in that time. I'm reminded of a passage in the book of Hebrews. Now, you might say, well, preacher, this is interesting this morning. But does it really have anything to do with me? The fact that the Son of God, I'm not the Son of God like He's the Son of God. And I understand that. But we are sons of God if we've been born again. Uh, The Bible says, To as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. You say, well, preacher, I'm not God in the flesh. And that's true. You and I are not God in the flesh. However, Christ is in us and He is the hope of glory. And you say, well, preacher, what could this have to do with my life? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us why this is so relevant to our lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read this, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Say, preacher, what could Matthew chapter 4 have to do with my life? Well, it's that little phrase in Hebrews 4.15 that draws my attention this morning. The Bible says he was in all points tempted. This is the phrase, like as we are. Now, you've probably never had the devil approach you and speak to you in audible fashion and encourage you to command stones to be made bread. You've probably never been spirited away under the top of of the temple in Jerusalem. You couldn't today. You'd be atop a a mosque. And, And tempted to cast yourself down and trust the grace and mercy of God to protect you. You've no doubt never been taken away to a high mountain and shown in a glimpse, in a moment of time, all the kingdoms of this world and been offered them by the devil if you would only bow and worship him. However, the book of Hebrews reveals to us that though we may not have experienced everything in exact fashion, that the temptation of the Lord Jesus was in some ways very similar to the same temptations that we experience day by day. So much so that the Holy Ghost uses the language like as we are. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at our passage of Scripture. And I want to ask you this morning, not just how we are tempted like as He was, but to look in this passage and see how that He was tempted like as we are. And ask ourselves this simple question. If Christ was able to face temptation, and doing so, He did not merely recline upon the status of His person. He could have very easily spoken the devil out of existence if He had chosen to do so. But instead relied upon the authority and truth of the Word of God. Is He not giving us a pattern whereby we too can face temptation in our life? You say, well, preacher, I'm never tempted. Well, you're a liar. Because the Bible says every man is tempted. Every man is tempted. The Bible says there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Did Paul say that trying to predict the temptations that the Corinthians would face? No, he said that because every temptation that a man faces is not unique unto himself, but is common. We all face temptation. If you don't think you're going to face temptation, here was Paul's exhortation to those that might think they were above it. He said, let him that think he standeth take heed lest he fall. If you think you can't be tempted, all you've done is made the devil's work a little easier. If you think you can't be tempted, all you've done is guarantee that when temptation comes, you will doubtless fall to that temptation. I want us to look at this passage this morning and notice in it a pattern both for how temptation is experienced in our life and how we are to respond to temptation when we are tempted to sin. Notice the very first verse in our text this morning. The Bible says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward unhungered. 
Now, you'll find that this story is one of what we would call the synoptic narratives or synoptic stories in the Bible, meaning that it is contained in the synoptic Gospels. A record of it is found in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, and we'll spend a little time in each of those this morning. But it's interesting that in Matthew's account, the very first phrase that is uttered in describing the temptation of the Lord is that He was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. We're told he had been out in the wilderness fasting and being tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights. It's almost like the Spirit of God wants to set the context for our passage and help us to imagine in our spiritual mind or our spiritual imagination exactly the scene that is playing out before us. In doing so, here's what the Holy Spirit does. He tells us when temptation happens. You know, there are certain seasons in your life that are more conducive to temptation than others. Now, it's true that there are certain things you can do and you can, in a foolhardy way, place yourself in the pathway of temptation. There are certain things you can do that make the devil's job easier. But I don't certainly mean being foolhardy or being cavalier. I don't think the Lord Jesus was being foolhardy. I don't think He was being cavalier. And yet we find Luke's account says the devil departed for a season. In other words, he was right then at that moment in a season of temptation. You know, when does temptation come to our life. Well, I would notice three things in our text that might help us to understand when we can expect temptation to rear its head. Notice number one, the first phrase, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit. I'll tell you what some people's perspective is, that temptation is merely a byproduct of our disobedience in the first place. There are some people that would suggest that the only reason we're ever tempted is because we have at first allowed ourselves to be placed in a compromised position. Some of y'all remember hearing, some of y'all remember saying when you had children that were teenagers, nothing good ever happens after 10 o'clock at night. You ever remember that? Nothing good ever happens after 10 o'clock at night. And, and, And the sentiment behind that was that if you want to stay out of trouble, stay away from trouble. And I would certainly say that it's true in our lives. We can put ourselves in a compromised position. It's true in our lives that we can hang around the wrong crowd. We can be around the wrong people. And I will tell you that a whole heaping portion of your problems in life will be solved if you will consider carefully the people you surround yourself with. But by the other hand, I would also say this. When we look at the Lord Jesus in this passage, no one could accuse Him of living in disobedience. No one could accuse Him of living in cavalier manner. Nobody could accuse Him of embracing a compromised position. This is not merely, and I hate to even say not merely, because there's nothing merely about who He was, but I would just point out, He's not merely just God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh, indwelt by God the Spirit. And He's not just God in the flesh, indwelt by God the Spirit, but He's God in the flesh and dwelt by God the Spirit, guided by God the Father. And He's not just God in the flesh, God indwelt by God the Spirit and led by God the Father, but He is being led by the Spirit of God on His very path that He's on at this moment. And it reminds me that temptation doesn't just come when we're already all messed up. Let me say it this way. A season of temptation can come during a time of consecration. It's not just when you drift from God that the devil's going to try to tempt you, oftentimes it's when you draw close to him that he will redouble his efforts. It's interesting when you see how this uh, event is described in the different Gospels. In Mark's account, the Bible says this, immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. No one could say Jesus was outside of the will of God. In Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus was led up of the Spirit. Nobody could confess or, or proclaim Him to be living in rebellion or contrary to the will of God. And Luke's account says this, Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Nobody could accuse Him of having a casual form of faithfulness to the Lord. He was full of the Holy Ghost. He was led of the Holy Ghost. He was driven of the Holy Ghost right into the teeth of temptation. I'm just trying to tell you this morning, it don't make you spiritual because you're tempted. But it don't mean you won't be tempted because you're spiritual. And don't think for one moment that your life is just going to be an ebb and flow of devotion or, or, or you know, declination that it's either going to be I'm close to God so I'm not bothered or I'm drifting from God so that I'm bothered. There'll be times you draw nigh unto the Lord. Certainly He'll draw nigh unto you, but there'll be times you draw nigh unto the Lord and it'll get the devil's attention too. It was during a time of consecration. But then notice the very next phrase. It says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now that's instructive. 
into the wilderness to be, to be tempted of the devil. Is God against the wilderness? I don't think so. God created the wilderness just like He created the fertile lands and the plains and just like He created men built cities, but God created all manner of things when it comes to the topography and geography of this world that He created. And even God Himself is a builder and maker of a city by the hands of God. Why does the Holy Ghost tell us that it was when He went into the wilderness? Well, I think Mark's account sheds a little bit of light for us. It says in Mark 1.13, He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan. Listen to what the Bible says. He was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him. Now, what is suggested by that phrase, the wilderness and the wild beasts? It tells us this. He was in a place where there were no other people. He was in a wild location. Let me say it this way. It's not only during times of consecration that you'll often face temptation, but it's also during times of isolation that you'll often face temptation. It's interesting that the devil came to him when he wasn't surrounded by any of his disciples, by any of his followers, by any of his friends. Now you say, well, preacher, what does that tell us about why he went into the wilderness? Well, we know why he went in the wilderness. The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. The more important question is, why did the devil come looking for him in the wilderness? And the reason why is because very often, if Satan can isolate us away from the people of God, he believes he has a greater chance of tempting us. I would say this, that we understand by then and by virtue of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that Christ didn't need support around Him to be able to resist temptation. But understand that all of this is set as a pattern for you and I to understand what we can expect and what we can experience when temptation comes our way. And it is very instructive to me that the devil always seeks to get Christians alone to take over their life. It's part of the reason church is so important. Part of the reason church is so important. I don't know if I just, I'm saying that it's part of the reason church is so important. Hey, you know what's important? Hey, you're getting it this morning. That's why we ought to forsake not the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. It's funny, man. The, the home church crowd all thinks they came up with a new thing. It was already the manner of some in the time of the book of Hebrews to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. It was already the, the, the manner of some back then to try to isolate themselves away from the people of God to try to create a kingdom of their own making. But Paul reminds them that it's important that we not forsake the assembling, assembling, assembling of ourselves together. I don't know how you define an assembling, but I, I define an assembling as people all being in the same place together. If the, 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 there ain't never been an unlawful assembly over Zoom. There ain't never been an unlawful assembly over, over Facebook video. It's funny how we redefine those terms in our society today. We've all understood what an assembly was until it was important uh, in the government's interest for us to not understand what an assembly was. But I would remind you that assembly is people getting together. And we're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but I hate we're to exhort one another, provoke one another unto good works. So much the more as you see the day approaching. We shouldn't be having less church. We should be having more church. And all that is because we are living in a heightened and, and, and spiritually charged environment in which Satan is seeking to subvert and destroy the witness and testimony of the New Testament church. We need each other more today than we've ever needed each other. And understand that in your life, one of the things Satan will seek to do when he seeks to subvert your testimony, to compromise you, to lure you into sin, is he will try to cut you from the herd, cull you from the people of God. He'll try to get you off by yourself where his is the loudest voice in your life, where his is the greatest influence in your life, where there's no accountability, where there's no checks, where there's no balances, where he can spin whatever tales he wants to spin to you. And you don't have anyone to stand and say, hey, here is truth, here is truth, here is truth. It's vitally important that we stay plugged up with the people of God. Because often when you find yourself by yourself, that's when Satan will seek an open door, an opportunity to lure you and tempt you to sin. It's vitally important. That's the reason we need to be in church, but it's also the reason we need to be in fellowship with God's people. It's the reason we need encouragement day by day. It was during a time of isolation. But then notice the next phrase, verse number 2. The Bible says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hunger. Why does the Spirit of God take special notice of this? Luke says it this way in Luke 4, 2, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days, he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterward hungered. It's laying an emphasis on the fact that he would have been weak in body, 
that he would have been desirous of food and of sustenance, that it would have been, let me say it this way, during a time of deprivation. A time when our body tells us we don't have everything we need and everything we want. I can't tell you the times that the devil seeks to spin the lie in people's ears. Go ahead and do this. You deserve it. You've done without this long enough. You've done without this far enough. You owe it to yourself. You deserve it. You ought to indulge a little bit because after all, it's not fair that other people experience this or that and you don't get to experience. It's interesting that the very first temptation that he lays at the feet of the Lord Jesus is one concerning appetite and hunger. Appetite and hunger. He looks at him and he doesn't make up out of whole cloth a desire that would have naturally dwelt within the body of the Lord Jesus, but instead he capitalizes on something that though not wrong in and of itself, if done for the wrong reasons, if taken in the wrong manner, if taken in the wrong way, could dishonor God. He points to his appetite and his hunger. Often in your life and in my life, the devil will capitalize on seasons where we feel like we're struggling, where we feel like we're doing without but we don't understand why why do they get to have this, but I don't get to have this. Why do they have it easy, but I have it so hard? Why do they have no trials, but I'm suffering trials? And he'll come along and say, well, you just go ahead and take what you want for yourself. You deserve it after all. <laughs> it's funny the way he said it, isn't it? I mean, i got a message to preach. I'm going to get to it here in a second. I, listen, don't worry. I already called Cracker Barrel. they got you all reserved tables, all right? So don't worry. And and it's interesting, he says, if thou be the Son of God. He's saying, how could you claim you're the Son of God and yet do without? How could you claim you're the Son of God and yet do without? How many times does he say to you, go ahead and take this, you deserve it. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you've done? Don't you know how hard you've worked? Don't you know how hard you've tried in life? You deserve it. If you really are, if you've really done what you say you've done, go ahead and take it unto yourself. It's in a season of deprivation. So I see the season of temptation in this passage. But now let's zero in on exactly what the devil says and exactly what the devil offers. Notice not just the season of temptation, but notice the strategy of temptation. Notice how the devil approaches the Lord Jesus and what he exactly tries to get him to do. I think it's very instructive of of what sin tempts us with or what sin we are tempted with in our life. The first one is in verse number 3. The Bible says, When the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now that's an interesting proclamation. I don't think the Lord's against bread. Let me just say, thank God that God's not against bread. Ah, listen, I mean, I, the, you yeah, listen. You be a carnivore all that you want and, and, and eat eight pounds of steak. I'm glad God's blessed you enough you can afford to do it. i got to have some bread, man. I, even if it kills me, i got to have some bread. Pasta? My soul. God's not against bread. After all, Christ is the bread of life. He ain't the gluten-free, low-calorie, wheat, oat. Some of y'all eat stuff that belongs in your flower bed. <laughs> Call it bread. He, hey, he's the bread alive. There's nothing wrong with him eating bread. In fact, we have on several occasions examples in the New Testament of him eating bread. Nothing wrong with that. I don't believe it would have been wrong had it been the will of the Father for him to command the stones to be made into bread. It's interesting when you stop and think, and there's probably multiple dimensions to what's taking place here, because it's one of the very things that he did when he saved us, is he took us uh, from being rough-hewn stones and made us precious jewels and gems. He took us from being nothing but clay of the ground and formed us into his image and made us to eat of the bread of life. There's probably a lot going on in this passage, but I want to make a real obvious observation. The first strategy of temptation was to appeal to fleshly satisfaction to taste of sin's pleasure. Eating bread was not wrong. Him commanding the stones to be made bread would not have been wrong. But I'll tell you what would have been wrong. Him doing anything the devil told him to do. I'll tell you how petulant our Christianity should be. It should matter to us who's telling us what to do. Not just what's being told, but who's telling us. Who who commands in your life? Who commands in my life? 
There are a great many things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but there's a right way, a right season, a right context in which those things are to be enjoyed and experienced and partaken in. And here in this passage, it was not the very act of eating bread that would have been wrong, but it would have been the fact that rather than trusting his Father and finding satisfaction in Him, He would appeal and allowed His body to take dominion over what the Spirit was desiring and was, was wanting and was craving. And the very first thing He says is, go ahead and taste a little, it won't hurt you. He spun that lie one time to some parents you and I had. Go ahead and taste a little. Won't hurt you any. <laughs> Listen, I, I guess I, I, I'm sure glad the second Adam responded differently than the first Adam. Although I'll say, me and you probably wouldn't be here if the first Adam hadn't done what he did. In God's wisdom and counsels, never, never a thing's been out of his control, but when I look at this passage of Scripture, I'm reminded that the fundamental uh, function, the primary argument that is made by the devil when he seeks to lure you and I away is he wants us to taste of sin's pleasure, to satisfy the body, to satisfy the desires, to satisfy that which is fleshly and that which is carnal, to prioritize the body above the spirit. He says, go ahead and taste. Listen to what James says about temptation in James chapter number 1. It says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when? When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It begins with a desire. Sometimes that desire in and of itself is unholy. Sometimes the desire itself is not unholy. But when it prioritizes self above the Spirit, self above Christ, self above the will of God, it becomes something that is unholy in the eyes of the Lord. I see in this passage, the first strategy is an appeal to fleshly satisfaction. Then look at verse 5. Now you say, well, preacher, we ain't going to talk about what the Lord said back. We will, we will. Don't be patient. I'm just, I'm like a tenth of the way through this message, all right? So look at verse 5. Some of y'all got nervous. Then the devil take them up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, there you find it again, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. What is the temptation to sin anyway? Well, I would say primarily it is to it is an appeal to fleshly satisfaction. It is to say, I'm going to indulge self and, and encourage self and experience sin because it satisfies self. But part of the way that the devil in his propaganda convinces us to do so is with this second temptation that he makes. What's he saying in this passage? Well, as you know, there's Scripture being quoted here. And the Scripture that's being quoted is actually from the book of Psalms, chapter number 91. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, if you're a student of your Bible and have studied the Psalms in particular, you may already know that Psalms 91 is what theologians call a messianic psalm. In other words, it is a psalm that foretells and prophesies the coming Messiah. And so the appeal that Satan is making there is unique to Jesus as the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And listen to that passage in, Matthew, or in uh, Psalms 91, verse 11. It says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, I read that simply to read verse 13, which the devil conveniently stopped at quoting. Verse 13 says this, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder... <laughs> The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Ain't no wonder he didn't want to keep quoting Scripture. He's talking like a politician there. He'll only quote Scripture as long as it serves him. Amen. They don't want to keep reading Scripture. Eventually it's going to make them nervous. And so the devil, he quotes Scripture for a little while, but he stops when it begins to apply to himself and what the Messiah will do. But it's interesting that he should make this proclamation. Now, again, this is a messianic prophecy. If you were to go to the very top of the, of the Dome of the Rock, of the mosque there, and go to a, a, a proximal location that is similar to possibly where the Lord Jesus was at this moment, and if you were to hurl yourself downward, you could be guaranteed a short drop and a hard stop. You would go splat with great theatrics and great aplomb. What he's saying is, you as the Son of God, you can trust to God's protection in a unique way. 
What is the temptation to sin? Well, first, it's an appeal to fleshly satisfaction. But then I would say, number two, it is an appeal to divine protection. The first is to taste of sin's pleasure. But the second, he's encouraging you to tread on God's mercy. Let's be honest for a minute. There's not a one of us in the moment in the throes of temptation that it does not cross our mind. Even if I do this, God will forgive me. God will protect me. Even if I indulge in this, even if I dishonor Him, even if I grieve Him, the very nature of the faithfulness and mercy of God will be such that He will protect me because I am His child and He loves me. I know that if I confess my sin, He is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So I will commit this sin knowing that God is gracious and He will forgive me after all. No, you've never done it, I know. But I'll confess I've thought that. Well, I, I know I'll mess up, but God, God's gracious. He'll pardon me. He'll forgive me. All that does is betray a heart that is in love with itself and has no regard for the heart of God. And that's been my heart often enough. That's been my heart all too often. Where I've thought, even if it hurts Him, He won't hurt me. Let me say, number one, there's no guarantee He won't get your attention. We'll say a word about that before we're done. But what a cruel, carnal, hellish perspective it would be to say, even if I hurt him, he won't hurt me. It's an appeal to divine protection. Look at verse number 8. We have a third temptation. The Bible says, again, the devil take them up into an exceeding high mount and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Something you'll find as you study your Bible, is that the devil knows the Bible far better than the average churchgoer. He knows scripture. Uh, there's no question that he is aware, at least in some semblance and in some sense, of what God's plan is regarding the ages and regarding the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. And undoubtedly that frames the temptation that is given here. When the devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and you know, I believe it's Luke that says he shows them to him in a moment of time, meaning he doesn't just show him all the kingdoms currently, but the glory of all of the kingdoms that have existed. We might say the composite glory of all of men's accomplishments. And he says, I will give you all these things if you'll just fall down and worship me. No doubt Satan understood that those kingdoms were His but for a moment, and that eventually they would be Christ's nevertheless. So what then is He tempting Him with? I think He's tempting Him with this. And this is all sin, by the way. All sin is an appeal to fleshly satisfaction of some semblance. It might not even be flesh in the sense of, uh, of that which is physical and can be touched and sensed and experienced, but it can be uh, fleshly in the sense of that which dwells in and that which is native to our old man and our old condition. It's all an appeal to fleshly satisfaction. It always involves an appeal to divine protection, but it is likewise an appeal to instant gratification. He's saying, you could have these God's way, but it's going to be a cross. It's going to be a betrayal. It's going to be a scourging. It's going to be being made sin. It's going to be a rejection. Yeah, you'll eventually get them. But I'll give you all that and you won't have to go through that. We could say it this way. The first temptation deals with tasting of sin's pleasure. The second deals with treading on God's mercy. But the third deals with trading away God's plan. I'll give you all these kingdoms, but you won't have to go through everything that God wants to put you through to get them. I'll give them to you right now. No rejection, no betrayal, no scourging, no cross. You can have it right now instead of waiting to have it in God's time and in God's way. Can I make a statement to you this morning? Hey, listen, whatever satisfaction sin promises, God has already vouchsafed to His people a far deeper and more contented and, and more meaningful satisfaction than what sin could ever give you. Here's the question. Are you willing to wait on what God wants to do in your life? My soul, we're willing to teach this to young people. 
We talk all the time to young people about saving themselves, staying pure, about the fact that if you'll just be consecrated, focus on the Lord, live your life for Christ, He'll bring you someone in your life. Don't ruin your testimony. Don't ruin your life. Don't ruin your conscience by engaging in immorality. Instead, it's better just to wait, have it in God's time and in God's way. And if you'll just be patient, God will give you more than sin could ever offer you. We preach it to young people. But why don't we preach it to us? Because let me tell you something, we're just as guilty of it as young people are. Maybe not in the same form or fashion, and undoubtedly some in exactly the same form or fashion. But regardless of what form it may take, we are all guilty of wanting to say, hey, I'd rather have it my way, on my terms, in my time, than wait on God to give me peace, joy, and contentment in life. What do we do? Well, I think we ought to do what Jesus did. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a, of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Hey, that was those knees that Satan was showing him. <laughs> that every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue, hey, that was all those tongues that Satan was showing him, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was saying, you can have it in your time, on your terms. Jesus said, I'd rather have it God's way. Whatever it is, my friend, you'd rather have it God's way than have it His way. We see the strategy of temptation, but now I want you to notice how Jesus answers him. He said, well, preacher, how can I face temptation? I'm not the Son of God. I'm not God in the flesh like He was. I don't have divine power like He had. And, and while I understand, we make all the theological distinctions, that point is well taken. I understand. I'm not as strong as he is. I'm not as wise as he is. But it's interesting the way that he sought to meet the devil in this conflict. Because rather than just simply saying, I am the Son of God and I don't have to prove it to you, now scoot. He could have. And that would have been pretty entertaining. <laughs> but it's a little more edifying that here's what he did. He chose to arm himself with the very thing that you and I are armed with. Now, I'll tell you what I think often people misunderstand about this passage. It is not the quoting of the Scripture that gave the victory. It is the content of the Scripture that gave the victory. Now, I'm not opposed to us quoting Scripture, memorizing Scripture. And sometimes it may help you if you're faced with temptation to quote Scripture that it might bolster your heart and encourage you. But Jesus is not wielding the Word of God like some magician's abracadabra. He's not proclaiming it forth, expecting... Rather, what he's doing is he is answering the temptation of Satan with the truth of the Word of God. And he is reminding him why that temptation would be of no fruit and of no benefit to him were he to indulge in it. What does he describe? Well, notice verse number 4. You remember the temptation. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made into bread. But he answered in verse 4 and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He's quoting here, of course, Deuteronomy chapter number 8, verse number 3. It's interesting, this passage of Scripture. Of course, the book of Deuteronomy is rehearsing the history of the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness and also the law of God that was given. And this is what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 8, 3, describing Israel in the wilderness. It says, And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. You remember the children of Israel as they journeyed out of Egypt, they very soon in their travels got to casting their mind backwards to Egypt. And they complained how that they didn't have anything to eat. They were hungry. Their bodies were struggling. They wanted some kind of sustenance, something that would satisfy them. And they said, we remember the leeks and the cucumbers and the, the fish and the garlic and the onions. Sounds good, don't it? Uh, of Egypt. And said, we remember the flesh pots of Egypt. And the Lord, His answer and His reply is this. I will feed you with something from heaven that you've never seen before that will make you forget, if you'll eat it, what you left behind. We could say it this way. He said to them, I'll give you a source of satisfaction by my promise and by my word that will far outstrip anything that Egypt could have given you. 
Here's what he reminds him of. They are tempted, or the Lord is tempted with fleshly satisfaction to taste of sin's pleasure. The Lord's reply is to remind him what the true source of satisfaction is. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I've got no crystal ball to gaze in, and I'll, I'll flip no tarot cards over, but I will go ahead and make a prediction for you this morning. Once you get what you're after, it won't be enough, and you won't be happy. It will not satisfy you. It will not please you. It will not gratify you. The moment you taste it, it will turn to ashes in your mouth. Because the only thing that really satisfies is the Lord. (laughs) You really want a satisfied life? It ain't going to come from all those things that the devil wants you chasing after. Boy, he must laugh when he looks down at, 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 at masses of God's people that are perfectly, purely content to spend their life running on a hamster wheel, seeking the approval and pleasure and satisfaction of this world, all the while God's sitting over there with a pot of manna and tears in his eyes saying, I've got so much more I could do for you, so much more I could give you, so much more that would satisfy you. If you would just quit chasing them and come to me, I would give you all that would please you. Hey, listen, he reminds him what the source of satisfaction is. There's another scripture the Lord quotes. You remember in the in the very next one, he he tells him, he says, cast yourself down. And the Bible tells us that the angels will carry thee up. They will they will take charge of you and and they will watch over you. The Lord, he replies back in verse number seven. He says, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's interesting. Now, remember what that second uh, temptation is. It's about an appeal to divine protection. Go ahead and, and do this. And because of who you are and because of who God is, He will protect you. He will be merciful to you. And you won't suffer any consequences. The Lord quotes back, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Well, that's an interesting verse. It's actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Listen to what it says. He shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. That's an interesting scripture, isn't it? Of course, again, the book of Deuteronomy is retelling the history of the children of Israel as they journeyed from Egypt. And what is Massa? It's a place, obviously. Well, we're told about it in Exodus chapter number 17. Verse number 5 says this, The Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They're traveling through the wilderness. They are thirsty. They see no place of water, no place of sustenance. They begin to accuse foolishly Moses and charge Moses and say, God drug us out here in the wilderness and now He has abandoned us. Prove to us that God is really here with us. God says, I'll prove that very thing to you. And He sends Moses with staff to smite the rock and water comes forth. Now, I won't get into all of it, but if you've studied your Bible, you know what a picture that is of Calvary. And how the rock was smitten and the water came forth. And you also know how that later on in his life, Moses in anger smites the rock again. And when he smites the rock again, you know what happens? He he can't enter the promised land. Here they want proof that God is among them. You know, oftentimes when... (laughs) Did you ever get told when you was being obnoxious as a kid, you ain't going to like the attention you're about to get? Did you ever get told that? I got told that a lot. Maybe that says something about me. They'd say, you want attention, you ain't going to like the attention you're going to get. You know why we believe that God will not destroy us when we sin? Because He's our Father. He's our Father. He loves us. He's our Father. I'm His child. He loves me. But if you had a daddy like I had, you know that love gets expressed in all sorts of creative ways. Here's what the Bible says about the love of our Heavenly Father. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, scourgeth everyone that is his. If you be without chastisement, then you bastards and not sons. You may find out that the love of God don't take the form of angels charging to scoop you up from a fast-rushing consequence of your sin. You may find out it comes from a trip to God's woodshed whereby he challenges and chastens you for your disobedience. Here was the Lord's reply. He points to the danger of God's displeasure. 
He says, here were the children of Israel murmuring against God, crying against God, chiding against God, saying, God, prove yourself. Well, there were times he did. There were times he opened the earth up and swallowed hundreds of them. There were times that he sent fire amongst them to consume them. There were times that he sent fiery serpents among them to bite them and to destroy them. There were times that he had to chasten them to get their attention. Here's the thing the devil don't tell you. God may just show you he's a father in a way that you're not anticipating. I don't say that to make you scared of your father. I do say it to make you scared of sin. <laughs> the danger of God's displeasure. Well, let's look at this last one. Then I'm, I'm almost done. I don't worry. I'm almost done. Verse 10. Now, remember what the temptation was. Takes him up to a high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And he says, all this can be yours if you'll just fall down and worship me. What's he doing? He's appealing to instant gratification, to trade away God's path and God's plan, and instead to take things on his own terms and in his own way. Then Jesus saith Jesus unto him, verse 10, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He's quoting in this passage, Deuteronomy 6.13 says simply this, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him and shalt swear by His name. Here's what he's reminding the devil of. He's reminding him of the wisdom of God's way. Thou shalt worship Him alone. What does it mean to worship? To ascribe worthiness to. We worship God not because of who we hope Him to be, but because of who we know Him to be. We worship Him not because we feel like our worship is so valuable, but because we feel that He is so deserving. And it is a way to ascribe to Him that He is worthy of all. That there's no amount of anything we could give up for Him that would not be worth it. It's interesting the Lord should quote this reply back. Here's what Satan's saying. Doing doing it God's way is not worth it. Doing it God's way is not worth it. You could do this my way and not have to go through all these things. But if you do it God's way, you're going to have to be betrayed and rejected and scourged and spit upon and beaten and crowns of thorns and and crosses of crucifixion. You're going to experience all of that. And it's just not worth it to do it God's way. Here's Christ's reply. I'm not wondering whether it's worth it. I know He's worth it. He's worthy. He's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my devotion. He's worthy of my obedience. And I will tell you this, even if God never gave you all the things He said He's going to give you, He'd still be worthy of everything that He's ever asked of you. Notice one more thing, and I'm done this morning. In this passage, I think we learn something of the of the season of temptation and the strategy of temptation and the Scriptures for temptation. But look at verse 11 with me. I love verse 11. The Bible says, Then the devil leaveth him. And behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let me just make a closing statement about the solace in temptation. You know, I'm glad where we face temptation, God gives strength. I'm glad where we face temptation that God doesn't abandon us. And here in this little verse, we're reminded that never for a moment had the Father taken His eye from the Lord Jesus. There's two things that ought to give us comfort when we're struggling with temptation. The first is this. It's the escape. Then the devil leaveth him. Luke says it this way. When the devil had ended all temptation, he departed from him for a season. Tells me this. Temptation will pass. It will pass. Now, that doesn't mean that we will ever reach a place in our life that we shouldn't expect we will face temptation. Of course, we will always face temptation, but it won't be temptation always. There are seasons of temptation. There are moments of temptation. There are times of intensity in the struggle to do right and to live for Christ and to keep our our, our testimony for Him. But there are also times that God gives mercy and pulls back those forces and permits us some time to grow strength and to grow peace and encouragement in Him. It don't last forever. There's always a way of escape. One of the most misquoted verses in 1 Corinthians 10.13, because people misunderstand the definition of the word temptation. Paul says this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, 
but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Oftentimes people have taken that and understood the word temptation there to mean trials and difficulties and afflictions and said, well, God will never put more on you than you can bear. This is completely unscriptural. Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 1 that God had put more on them than they were able to bear. That that they were pressed down out of measure. that, That they found in themselves the sentence of death. God will absolutely put more on you in terms of trials than what you can bear. Paul says, we found the sentence of death in ourselves that we might place our faith in God who raiseth the dead. He ain't never going to put more on you than he can bear. (laughs) He will put more on you than you can bear that you'll come to him and cast your cares upon him for he careth for you. But here, Paul, he's not talking about temptation in the sense of affliction, trials, or persecution. He's talking about the solicitation to do evil. Now, that's a a much less glamorous reading to the eyes and heart and mind of most people because here's how we can summarize it. God's never going to put you in a situation where your only choice is to sin. The devil's number one propaganda priority is to convince you that you have no choice but to do wrong. It is always a lie. There is always the choice to do right. Always. You'll never be in a situation where all you can do is wrong. He'll always make a way of escape. Hey, listen, it it may be like Joseph. You may lose your coat to keep your character. You may wind up in prison to keep your purity. You may go through trials to keep your testimony. But there will always be a way of escape. And I want to encourage you. you, Listen, you're suffering temptation. You're facing temptation. There's a way of escape. Preacher, I ain't found it. Keep looking. Keep looking. There's a way of escape. I see the escape is a solace in temptation. But then I see the encouragement. The Bible says, Behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Listen to how Luke rounds out this passage in Luke 4.14. says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. In other words, the Lord gave him the encouragement he needed. And here's what we want. We want God to encourage us till we won't sin. God says, go ahead and escape, and then I'll encourage you. Make the choice to do right, and then I'll encourage you. Then I'll encourage you. We want to say, well, God, if you don't supernaturally come along and take away this desire, it must be your will that I sin. Rank heresy. God will always make a way of escape. But you're going to have to escape. If you want the encouragement, you know what you'll find? If you will, he will. If you will, he will. And he always encourages and strengthens his people if they'll just lean on him. Let's bow together this morning. Musicians going to come and play. I don't know what God may have spoken to your heart about this morning. I do know this. If God has, the best place you'd be is in this altar. Best place you'd be is in this altar if he dealt with you about something. Go ahead and put it out of your mind that being at the altar is an admission or confession. And just meet the Lord in this altar if He's dealing with your heart about some matter this morning. Father, bless this invitation. Pray and magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.